This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We have a very special episode today with Dr. Stephen Heinrichs, professor and chair from the Department of Pathology and Microbiology at the University of Nebraska. Dr. Heinrichs has special interests in molecular therapeutics for cancer, models of molecular disease mechanisms, infectious diseases, as well as informatics and electronic information systems. His research focuses on molecular diagnostics, the role of viruses in cancer, and emerging infectious diseases. Dr. Heinrichs has published over 182 papers in basic science and medical journals. We're going to talk about what's involved in the transition to digital pathology. It feels like we're on the verge of something big, but there's more to it than just us, the pathologists in front of our microscopes. There's a whole host of people, individuals, and teams involved. What's involved from an administrative perspective when we're often in larger institutions? What kind of teamwork is involved? What sort of teams must be built? And Dr. Heinrichs has a special interest in the psychology of pathology. We'll find out a little bit about what he means by that. And what can we learn about how our brains process black and white images as we move into this new era of machine learning? This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years' experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268. For more information, J.A.V. Advisors. Dr. Steve Heinrichs from University of Nebraska, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your interest in digital pathology, your experience in your department at University of Nebraska. Well, it started a long time ago. We were fortunately one of the early partners with a biotech company called Bioimagine, and they let us get involved in all the important details in the beginning of the process meaning what's the strategy, what's the, what are the key issues, who are the customers, is it the pathologist or is it the person receiving the diagnosis, the technology of joystick versus a trackball, all those issues were important at the beginning of the field. Yeah, I think that's, that's exciting. And I think, you know, as you suggested, there's a lot of philosophical questions underlying all of this, you know, and I think in pathology, that's a key one. Who's actually the customer, right? Who's the, uh, the beneficiary of of our wisdom and our reports and, and our output, essentially. Absolutely. So if you introduce the technology and you put all kinds of interesting twists to it, it's just like a customer who is expecting to get McDonald's French fries and you give them something spicy. You lose that customer. So what exactly is the pathologist looking for? You've got to figure that out before you deliver a technology to them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think there's many levels to it. So, you know, at some level, the pathologist is the customer, you know, in terms of using digital systems and the equipment, you know, but ultimately there's an end user, which is the doctor who's treating the patient or even the patient himself. Exactly right. And then along the way, we encountered the process of diagnoses. And that became very interesting as well. And could I, could I slide on or an image on a scanner or on a, on a computer screen replicate what was going on in the pathologist's mind, meaning what made them feel comfortable in saying, now I finally make, can make a diagnosis. And when does that diagnosis appear? And is it, in their, is it in their brain or is it after a review of multiple components? 
all of those issues had to be looked at. And we were surprised then just how many different issues we had to consider in order to get buy-in from the pathologist and, and, and even accuracy. You maybe know along the way, one of the questions was, how do you validate digital pathology? And the early question or the thought was, well, we'll just take 50 cases and we'll look at them when they were looked at by glass, and then we'll have them looked at by a panel and see what they're, uh, whether they, they uh, correlate uh, in terms of diagnosis. And there was thought that maybe if we just waited two weeks, that would be good enough because the pathologist won't remember the first 50. But in fact, what we found out that depending upon the type of case, some of our pathologists remembered exactly that case and knew from just the way it appeared or was presented to them in their mind, they knew the diagnosis that they'd re rendered two weeks ago. And we went, then we went out a month, same story. There are some types of cancers or cases that pathologists will remember for life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that definitely rings true. I mean, especially the more unusual the case is or the more salient or prominent features. I think that's incredibly fascinating. And you brought up something there about validation, which I think, you know, is really key to all of what we do in laboratory medicine is does your test perform the way it's expected and does it do what you claim it does? And I think, you know, applying those principles to digital pathology is incredibly interesting because there's so many different use cases, right? And I mean, kind of one, just as an aside, my takeaway from validation, given just the infinite complexity of what we do in the lab, in many ways, validation is what we say it is, right? Because you could define it in many different ways, you know, inter-observer variability, intra-observer variability, you know, 50 cases of trying to find two or three abnormal glands in prostate cancer, 50, you know, versus 50 cases you'd see every day. So, I mean, I think how big of a, a task is that is just to appropriately define the validation studies and how can we be sure that those studies are going to ensure the accuracy of a system? Exactly, and that's a key issue. And then along the way, we encountered the regulatory issue and, and what are the uh, people at the FDA going to understand or expect in that validation? And that's when we encountered the terminology issue. Um, and, and what you probably know well, and most of our listeners will know well, is that depending upon where you were trained, you might use a totally different vocabulary to describe something than, than if it was if you were trained in a different location. So then we got into semantics and the same issues we encountered with electronic laboratory reporting, where we had to pick a standard and uh, had to get pathologists to agree on the terminology so that even though it was we were in a sense of in a visual field we still had to be able to talk about what is the terminology and then communicate and, and tr transport the result so all of those things became uh, key elements of the process i see so we're somewhere in the midst of this transformation uh this digital trans transformation. So where exactly would you say we are? I mean, I think at some point in the future, we, Im we imagine a world without the light microscope where our complete workflow is going to be moved to a system where slides are scanned and we're gonna just use the computer monitor. You know, how long has this been going on and where are we? We're clearly not there yet, are we? No, but, um, but we're, I think we're very much at the cusp um, in terms of the current technology. But the question I think is, will the technology change? Meaning, might we actually pick up tissue and put it on a tape, on a ribbon instead of a slide? 
And that's one of the things we're looking at because we always assume that there will be slides. That's not necessarily the case. And perhaps, uh, and, and this all gets then back to the issue of the automation and where is the improvement in the technology. If we still have to make a slide, we've not made the transition like radiology did. So we really aren't all the way to the future yet. So in one sense, absolutely, we can reproduce an image and I can absolutely um, have 100% confidence it's the, uh, you can make a correct diagnosis. There are some cancers where perhaps that is still a problem. For example, if you have to say that you've seen the nucleolus to be sure uh, about it or something, then that may not yet be quite there yet. But in terms of the pattern diagnoses and the general diagnoses and the ability to look at invasion, metastases, et cetera, uh, we're absolutely there right now. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a very key point. In terms of the current workflows and the current standards, we're absolutely there. We can take a glass slide, scan it, make a diagnosis, primary diagnosis on our computer monitor. You know, But you, you brought up some very interesting things there, which we've talked about previously on the podcast, is that in radiology, when they went digital, so they precede us maybe by 10 to 15 years, you know, one of the key components was they eliminated the film so that that there was the business case for that. It was cheaper. It was less toxic. They could get the images to the radiologist in a more timely manner. You know, but when we scan a glass slide, we're actually adding steps to our workflow. Exactly right. And so that's a piece that we still have to deal with. And will it ever go away? Not, not so sure, but I also want to make sure everybody understands it may well. There are alternatives that are out there. And, uh, but then now we're into this issue of, we're going all the way back to the, you know, the 1900s, 1800s. Does it have to be the same color? Right. So, and now we get into the color issue and then the color monitor, and those were all fun topics to work through as well. And so one of our graduate students asked the question or was willing to work on the question of, do pathologists need to see color in order to make a diagnosis? And, and, and or to be the same diagnosis that they rendered in color. And that was a fascinating study of the psychology of, of pathology. And in fact, we could find that in, you did not need color. Okay. And so all of this, these arguments about how much color capability the monitor have to have was not the key issue. It's just amazing the, the what say, the, the flexibility of the pathologist's mind. Yeah. And I, I definitely think they are a different type of person, if you want to say it that way, in terms of their visual connections. I think there is something very special about the visual, mental, cerebral connections in a pathologist. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly fascinating. Give me a lot, a lot to think about there. I mean, it kind of you know, two things come to mind. One is, you know, there's this expression, a poor, a poor carpenter blames his tools. You know, sometimes, you know, as we know, there's a lot of variability in histology, potentially, you know, you want to minimize it, but your pinks and purples are, are not always going to be the same. Right. And, you know, and then another thing is sometimes you're under the gun. Like if you ever find yourself doing a frozen section in a small community hospital, it's just you, right? You're the guy or gal who is in charge of taking that uh, freezing that tissue and turning it into a pink and purple slide and it's not going <laughs> to and it's not going to be perfect there's going to be freezing artifacts and and so on so you know number one you better know that process inside and out and number two you're going to have to make do you know with what you have in many cases exactly and and so this kind of brought back my early training at Mayo Clinic when we were just looking at frozen sections with blue yeah um, no red right and so it was amazing to me to learn then and to see the fascinating colors that you could also get on a permanent slide 
But as I said, many pathologists don't need that. Yeah. So it seems like we're going to have to, or it makes sense to move away from the glass slide because it, it is an extra step. And like you said, there's technologies out there that can help us do that. You know, But two things come to my mind. One is how do we bridge to the past then, right? In this new world where we don't have a glass slide. And like you said, it, it could be different colors. It could be different preparations. It could be different, you know, it could unlock different morphological features, you know, which are going to be not tied to the artifacts of formal fixation, paraffin embedding, and, and so on. So number one, how do we link to the past if we go to a new world? And then secondly, what would it take to validate a new system like this? I mean, it, that would seem a massive undertaking that would take years and years. Oh, absolutely. But back to your earlier point of the pathologist who's on their own out in a rural area, we actually have those situations now, and that's where digital, digital pathology can help them today because all they do, all they need to do is put that slide on a, on a small scanner, uh, make a phone call, and uh, our other consultants are on the phone with them and able to provide the assistance right now. So that is, that's the application that's out there today and absolutely working. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So now what about, you have an interest in administration. You're head of a, a large department. So what, what, what is this going to take, you know, from an administrative perspective or a hospital systems approach, you know, to make digital pathology work? Well, that's a fun topic. And of course, you now realize that you, you do have to take another psychological approach to that. And, and the phrase we use, and many people do in other technologies, is to work with the willing. Because if you can find the willing and work with them, you'll find that you generate enough momentum that just like a school of fish, everybody else will eventually come along. But you've got to drive hard and fast in order for that entire school of fish to turn. So you've got to find the, the right people to make your team and not start necessarily uh, with the leader who's been in the position for 15 years because they know what they are, they know what they want, and they may not be the ones. But on the other hand, if you work with people who may be close to the end of their the period of time of work, they realize that things have changed in their lifetime and they're more interested and willing. So it's, it's picking your group is a very important issue. Okay, yeah, that's fascinating. Getting back to the, the, getting back to the psychology of it all, I guess with any new technology, you know, we know there's there's mavericks, there's early adopters, you know, then there's the the large middle, and then there's the laggards. So, so that yeah, that's interesting. So, in any department, you're probably going to have a a mix of both, and then kind of leadership from the top. You know, you kind of need to select who's going to get on the bus, or how you can move the bus, or the school of fish, as you said, in the direction where it needs to go. So, and then you mentioned teamwork. Um, you know, so what? What are some key aspects of teamwork that's involved there? How do you get the right people on the bus? Well, so not only is then the pathologist uh, involved, but now you've got to move on to, to both directions. You've got to go back to the, the laboratory, the histologist, and the person who's going to cut the sections and actually then put them on the scanner 
that that's a key step. You've got to make sure that they are part of the team and that the, they don't put too much glue on the slide, right? And and uh, damage everything. So they need to know that they're a critical aspect of the whole program. And then you've got to go up to the top, meaning the the CEO, the the, the dean, and whoever is is funding the project, because you've got to begin by sharing them information, literature on the topic. You can't just walk in and ask for the million dollars. It takes quite a bit of effort to make sure that the organization is on board. And then the next biggest challenge is the information technology people, because they you walk in and you, you say you want uh, multiple terabytes of data and they, they go, are you crazy? How are you going to pay for that? How are we going to provide that storage? So we've actually had to work with a a strategy to say we're going to wash out or eliminate certain slides. We're not going to keep everything. Since we've got the glass, we could come back and scan it. However, there are such things as the consults where we return the glass. So then we say those are the things that we probably have to store forever as long as that patient's alive and a member of our, um, our, our treatment team. So those are, those are the big um, administrative issues. Okay. Yeah, there seems to be you know, we like to think of ourselves, you know, I think it's human nature. We're kind of the center of the universe, but it seems like you just highlighted there that the changes in going to digital might be the easiest for the pathologist, right? Because they're just, you know, how do I go from looking at a microscope to looking at a computer monitor, which is certainly a large shift, but it seems like the workflows for all of our staff making the slides you know, now if they have added steps of having to scan those slides, having to learn all about the slide scanner, being able to troubleshoot that, appreciate everything that can and will go wrong, you know, that's that's a huge role. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, the IT administrators having to, you know, create, uh, you know, a new interface with an LIS and a new you know, a way to handle all these large images. And then even, you know, the customers, the ultimate customers, the physicians taking care of the patients, if they're going to have to adopt to a new way of receiving the information, I think. So there's so much more to it than just the, than just a, the pathologist. So, you know, is there a way that you remind your staff or your department about that? Well, first of all, I appreciate you bringing it up because that's what is the issue uh, for the world and how to be a change agent and how to bring all these pieces together. Yes, yeah, so that so making sure that every member of the team is, knows they're a member of a team, and uh, that yes, there are certain individuals you have to give maybe a little bit more leeway to, but nonetheless, everybody needs to know that the janitor is as important as the person who processes the money, and that's a key aspect of any organization. Yeah. So let's get back to uh, the psychology of dig- of digital pathology. So. What exactly do you mean by that? You talked about black and white versus color images, which I think is incredibly fascinating. So in that is, you know, maybe the the features, the features that we think we're looking at aren't what we thought, or maybe there's much more information than we appreciated in a black and white image. Well, this, I think, brings us to that question of uh, artificial intelligence. And I think the way I talk about it is, where where is the diagnosis made? And when is the diagnosis made? And, and again, depending upon uh, how you were trained, uh, I remember uh, my professors saying, I don't, want to see, I don't want to know anything about the case. Don't, don't give me the clinical history. 
I just want to see the slides. And then another time I was with people who would say, well, you've got to tell me the clinical information because I'm going to go left or right depending upon what the clinical information is. So again, back to the issue of in the pathologist's mind, when they are about to render a diagnosis or moving towards a diagnosis, when does that happen? And, and where in the brain does it happen? And is it a, totally a visual thing? And so those are the kind of the questions that I think are fascinating. And how long does it take? It's amazing to me to see how quickly some people form an opinion and others sit and uh, cogitate uh, about it and maybe even uh, sleep on it. So it's quite interesting. And that's, again, a, a, a whole piece of, of digital pathology, but maybe it's also a piece of pathology at, at large of us as pathologists. Right, right. Yeah, that that always used to fascinate me is, right, the pathologist, the job is to come to a decision or a diagnosis and commit that to paper, you know, and then as best you can list your supporting reasons why you did that, maybe even cite literature and and so on, but everyone's different, right? And so the way you do it is going to be different than the way I do it and different than the way Dr. Smith does it. And yet the standard is here's the diagnosis. And so I think that that's fascinating. People's brains work in a different way, but as we move into a digital world, you know, where it's been said, you know, these images are going to become data and perhaps we're going to introduce more standardization about, you know, what the data means. And then when we introduce artificial intelligence and image analysis to that, are we going to get to, are we going to eliminate some of the subjectivity and what is the interplay going to be? Or so just for example, you know, the way you learn to diagnose cases is based largely on your experience, your subjective experience and then that translates into your expertise so is showing a human being you know a thousand cases going to be different than showing an ai system a thousand cases and what are the ethics or the psychology behind that and and i would also add that this is kind of then brings us to where we are in the field of pathology and semantics and standards and that's why then a number of years ago we then began to shift over from the issue of electronic lab reporting to this question of standards in pathology. And we'd largely been ignoring anatomic path. We'd put all our efforts on, a, on the clinical laboratory and having uniformity of orders and reports, et cetera. But this issue of terminology for anatomic path is critical. And of course, it's then not just the US, but it's, it's international. So we greatly appreciate the, the contributions of the uh, of International SNOMED so that we could begin to use common numbers, terminology, uh, standards for the entire uh, process. And so I would say AI is never going to get there until the pathologists are there. And, and it, it's, it, we're making progress. We've got quite a few of the different cancer groups uh, worked through but it's nowhere near where you could now begin to train a computer because even the pathologists don't agree on some of the terminology. Right. So is this going to take us back or are we going to perhaps have a, a second golden age in just h and morphology, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, obviously the, the, the primary role of looking at the h and slide is to get the diagnosis. But then above, the, above and beyond that, if we can offer predictive and prognostic information, that is information about how to best treat this patient, what, what drugs this patient is potentially going to best respond to. You know, if we look at breast cancer, for example, 
a system of grading was introduced in the early 1900s, which is still in use today, and added powerful prognostic information. But then, you know, we kind of entered the molecular age, you know, first with immunohistochemistry, but now with, you know, molecular uh, techniques using DNA and RNA and, and so forth, whereas now that's the key pieces of information that the clinicians look towards in, in treating the patients. Does it have this or that mutation? Does it express this this gene and so forth? I, I think you're right. Now, this does bring the pathologist back into the main picture uh, because if they did not submit the right piece of tissue for DNA extraction um, and or there were other factors to be considered on the slide, they're going to miss so now the, it's the pathologist who has to be informed and, and involved with the genomics. And again, digital imaging makes it all possible because the pathologist can sit in front of their cockpit or their dashboard and look at the slide, look at the, the uh, results of the, the, the data file in terms of the DNA, look at the reports by uh, um, genome analysis or genome oncology you know, integration, and then make a, an integrated uh, summary in a report. At the same time, one of the screens could well have the clinician on it, and now you can then talk to the clinician and walk through all of those different components. So I very much agree with you that we are now moving towards a new golden age of pathology, and the anatomic pathologist is not at the periphery. The anatomic pathologist is in the middle. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's definitely an exciting time to be to be practicing. So I mean, my, you know, my personal view is, or my suspicion is we're going to see maybe a little bit of a squeeze on tissue-based molecular, you know, that is, we're going to see a massive uptick in the use of the liquid biopsy. So we can look at things like circulating cell-free DNA and so forth to inform about the tumor. And we're going to be able to develop tools just based on the H&E features to add predictive and prognostic information, so maybe the uh, you know the molecular is going to become less important or or work in concert with the H and E. Any thoughts about that? Well, again, uh, fortunately, I'm near the end of my career, and I've been able to see all these changes over time. I've been in the room where I was told by the radiologist that we would not need pathology anymore because of the fascinating capabilities of MRI. Okay, so that came up uh, once or twice. Then I've also been in the room where the molecular biologist said, we're going to create a box and, and we're going to put the tissue in the box and the result is going to come out here and therefore we don't need pathologists. So I've actually heard that story multiple times throughout my career and I'd, I think there's maybe, there's always been some truth to the various statements, but um, there's always an element. And now I guess we're back to the issue of, will the pathologist improve and will the pathologist adopt? And in fact, I'm, I'm saying, I'm advocating that the pathologist is the one who's going to pull that together. Whether it's a liquid biopsy or a needle biopsy, it's still somebody's going to have to be able to communicate with the oncologist who does not have the time or the interest or the background to look at all those issues and integrate all that information. That's the role of the pathologist. That is, that is definitely, I think, what we're what we're striving for, really, to be the, the chief purveyors of the, of the information, not only the diagnosis, but the predictive and prognostic information as, as well, and really have the pathologist be in the cockpit or the driver's seat, so to speak. So what excites you, Dr. Steve Hendricks from University of Nebraska? Uh, what excites you in the next uh, 10 years or so? Well, this is all exciting, and uh, to be actually seeing it happen, you know, how wonderful is that? 
imagine, I think, in, in many respects, maybe we're, this is just like what Virchow was seeing many, many years ago, all the different components coming together, uh, meaning morphology, anatomy, biology, um, at that time also history, uh, and uh, even embryology. Now, now it's back to the technology, the informatics, the re revelation of what's going on in the genome. And, and now the next exciting thing after that is going to be, you know, epigenomics. And how, how is that going to be a, a component of all of this? So it, it's not just one thing. It's just, it's a, a wonderful time to be in pathology. And, uh, you know, there's a great future, I think, for all of us. Yeah, a great future for all of us indeed. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Steve Heinrichs from University of Nebraska. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.